0: What's better than one oncologist? Two. What's better than one oncologist?
1: Two. What is better than one oncologist? Two. Hi, I'm Dr. Finyifolu Balogun.
0: Hi, I'm Dr. Oninyi Balogun. We are the OncDocs. Cancer is rising worldwide. And it's nearly impossible to find someone who has not been affected by this disease.
1: This podcast is dedicated to sharing the stories of those affected by cancer and educating the general public about this disease.
0: On this episode of the OncDocs, we speak with Dr. Kaz J and Dr. Jamie Yamoa Jamie and Kazje are the parents of Zion, who was diagnosed at the age of two with a rare form of brain cancer called atypical teratoid rhabdoid tumor. They discussed with us their family's journey after this diagnosis.
2: My name is Jamie Yamoa, and I am the mother of Zion Yamoa.
3: I'm Kazje Yamoa, Jamie's husband and the father of Zion Yamoa. So Zion was a very dynamic, energetic young boy. Um, his eyes just lit up the room. His personality was just a very you know, pleasant and very enjoyable. He wanted to be in his, in his presence. He was just always very fun to be around. Um, and, um, you know, life was great. Life was good. I was um, finishing you know, residency, looking for a job. And in fact, around that time I'd actually already uh, signed a contract you know to to come to Tampa, and so it was it was good we are figuring out what life is going to look like and um uh, it was you know in hindsight, I think two weeks before his actual diagnosis, we noticed that he was probably going to bed a bit longer naps just taking naps a little longer, and you know had a bit of an unstead gait, but it wasn't apparent at that point, but it became uh, real apparent to me when um Jamie actually brought up to, to me that he probably had some problem with his, you know, when he was putting his hands together to pray at night, he could tell that he had some motor problems on his left hand.
1: Motor problems is when someone has trouble moving parts of their body.
3: Um, you know, he came down to me, and I was preparing, you know, for the next day to go to work and he came down, downstairs to me and I felt that he was limping a little bit. But again, I didn't know whether he sat on me funny or something like that, he just has a little limp. So... But then um, the next day, I remember it was a Thursday, and actually I was, I was supposed to fly out the, that Friday for a conference that where I was speaking. I had an oral presentation I was going to be given. Um, and that Thursday, you know, I, I was downtown, and you know, Jamie came over and she had some appointment for her knee. And so I decided to hang out with the kids, uh, which was uh, Zion, who you know, it was just before his, his uh, third birthday at that point and Zoe L, who was uh, his younger sister, and she was barely, you know, 16 miles at that point. And uh, so I got in the back of the car and um, I realized that there was something off. And at that point, I'm like, let me take him to the to the park and let him run around. Let me, let me try and examine him as, you know. As a physician myself, I just want to do my due diligence before I, I call my pediatrician and, and and alarm him for nothing, right? So we always want to make sure what we are. So I, I took him in. As soon as I saw him walking and trying to run, my heart just sank. Because he had the foot drop.
1: Foot drop is the inability to lift the front part of one's foot due to weakness of the muscles in the foot.
3: I mean, it was like, oh my goodness, this can be good. And at that point, I was telling myself, oh God, I'm hoping that this is a viral infection or something that will just pass and you'll be fine. But at the same time, when I played through the permutations, you know, it could be, you know, how how it goes, your brain just starts to go on all the differential diagnosis of what it could
1: potentially be. Differential diagnosis is a list of possible conditions or diseases that could be causing a symptom. And I knew what it could, the worst scenario, and I was hoping for the best scenario.
3: Uh, So I called my pediatrician and said, you know, Zion, there's something wrong, he's not working right. He's, he's, you know, I, I described all his neurologic deficits to pediatrician and he knows I wouldn't call him just for anything and so he said bring him right in just come over right now and so I, I contacted Jamie and we met we met up at, uh, and went and took Zion and Zoe all together to to the hospital and so when we actually to the to his office first and as as you know as happened we just got you know residents and fellows and, and specialists and you're just coming in the room and, and you know something's wrong The more, the more, the the more the white coats congregate in one space, you know something is not right. Um, So at that point, it just was was clear that that we're heading for you know a major uh, a major intervention. And so you know we got picked up by an ambulance to go to a major hospital to have surgery done there. Um, So. We left the physician's office, and that same day, by five, what, four thirty-five p.m. So we were in the in the emergency room, waiting for evaluation um, to determine what the next steps are. So at that point, it was clear to me that I'm not going. I'm not traveling the next day for any conference. I began to make calls to cancel it and re- re- reschedule things. And so by seven p.m., eight p.m. that night, you know, he had his first um, CAT scan. And I remember the uh, the, and the radiologist or whoever that was came over and said that, you know, it's not looking good. He has a, about an eight by eight centimeter tumor in his right frontal brain, what they thought was was a tumor. He said, yeah, multiple calcifications in there. And I, I told myself, well, that could be a good thing. He says, no, not so much because it looked pretty aggressive looking and that we have to do an MRI and and so on and so forth. Now hearing that for the first time, it's almost like unreal. I want it to be one of those benign. Benign is
1: a non-cancerous condition.
3: Large tumors that gets removed and he goes on to college and graduates and whatever. And we can say, oh yeah, when he was three, he had this tumor that got removed. Mm That was my prayer, and that was my hope. Um, because I was always saying, hey, 90% of the time, that's what it is. 90% of the time, that's what it is. And is. We're gonna be in that, that big bucket, right? We always tell ourselves that, right? Um, but that wasn't the story after his MRI. We didn't get the exact report of the MRI, but he had to go into the OR um, that night, and we had to begin to like reorganize our life, calling family and friends and, you know, just getting Zoe all situated, because we had a 60-month-old I needed to take care of, and Jamie was not going to leave Zion's side. So I was a runner. I was doing the running around and trying to get things done. And so come the next day, he underwent a five-hour surgery. um, And that wait in the waiting room was the longest wait of our lives, just waiting and waiting, and just hoping that, you know, it's all going to be fine. And... um, I remember the surgeon coming out and calling Jamie and I into his office and saying that it looks aggressive, but it, he said the presumptive diagnosis was Epidemoma.
1: Ependymoma is a brain or spinal cord tumor that is often treated with surgery and has a fair prognosis, with about 60% still alive by year 10.
3: And at that point, I looked at Jamie and I said, oh, that, that could be good. I mean, that's, you know, we'll, we'll deal, you know, we'll deal. He said there was a lot of bleeding, they had to do a transfusion, they, you know, there was some. He started talking about some sort of a um, breach in the left ventricle.
1: The ventricles are spaces in the brain that contain fluid to bathe the brain. They are physically separated from parts of the brain that contain nerves for performing what we think of as brain activity.
3: I started getting a little worried, I'm like, Ugh, I don't like the sound of that. But he said, well, you got everything, you know, so I'm like, okay. So we he, he was uh, admitted to the ICU and man, this little boy woke up like a champion. <laughs> he woke up looking for food. His he had no neurologic deficits. We felt like we we're out of the woods. He was like bouncing back, playing with his with, with his you know superhero uh, toys, and he was just back to normal. He was just real, and, and yet he has a JP drain in his brain and it's oozing, and and he's he's just he's just Zion. He's just living, you know. Um, so obviously we have to wait for the final pathology, and that's when I started to get the actual reports of the MRI. And by that point, I, you know, I was thinking God being so good, I had finished with all my required electives. I was really graduated. It was just a matter of all my, you know, everything with, you know, that was required was done. But it was basically just some electives that I had to finish up. So, you know, my, I spoke to my program director and my chair, and they said, listen, take time and be for family, you know, this is going to be fine. This, this just just uh, stay put. So at that point, I actually make, made some calls to to look for protocols that he could be on for epidemoma.
1: Protocols are another name for clinical trials. These are research studies to test out new drugs.
3: Come, I think maybe five days later, whilst he was still now in the oncology floors and trying to you know get him weaned off and get home, we had a family meeting, and again, you and I know when you, when when, physicians walking with social workers and this and that, and everyone's face is a a bit like down, you feel it that this can't be good news. So they sit sit down and tell us that the prognosis is poor. And that the diagnosis, final diagnosis was atypical teratoid rhabdoid tumor. Now I remember the first time I heard that diagnosis was when I was in PGY1, PGY2 somewhere, you know? and I asked the chief resident, what is that? Is it, does it have, because they said ATRT, and I said, is it an ATR, like an ATM, ATR, like pathway stuff? He said, no, 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 it's, it's one of those rapid tumors that is really, really bad.
1: ATRT is a highly malignant and rapidly growing tumor that is primarily found in young children less than three years old. Median survival is one to two years from diagnosis, with just about 35% alive by year five. When he said
3: that, Jimmy asked me, "What is that?" I'm like, "Oh God, how am I going to, expl- how am I going to break this down?" Um, I know that you know, two-year survival is like abysmal. Um, there are very few long-term survivors that you know of. So at that point, that, that news was devastating. I don't know if Jimmy asked anything to say on that yet, but at that point, we're like, "What do we do?" Um, I made a few calls, and we had a, a clinical trial going on. And that I, f- I feel like that's the only option. He needs to go on a clinical protocol because there is no standard of care for this. Uh, he's had a savior ready, He's going to get his 14-day uh, post-surgical uh, MRI. We'll figure out what what is necessary with spinal fluid. And in the meantime, I'm going to make the calls for people I know. And maybe we can get into a clinical protocol. And we got into a clinical uh, protocol at St. Jude. And that was uh, the where we went. So at that point, I was... Uh, living in Philadelphia, finishing, you know, residency, signed a contract to be at in Tampa and living in Memphis because we had to relocate there. So I was in, living in three states in that phase of our lives. And I can tell you, it was I was flying back and forth and trying to figure things out. And by the way, Oni, I'm sure you appreciate this. I was about to take uh, written boards. so So that was all going on. I'm trying to study for written boards. I'm trying to you know, graduate because I did not want to graduate. I mean, I've gone this far that I, I wanted to graduate. I mean, there's the the incentive was there to finish this, and and so thank God we had a very very uh, you know incredible time with you know I, I have to say that the child life specialists were great with him. He he really felt like he he belonged. He he found his, his spark again. We go, went through the protocols. We got the chemo. We basically he he dealt with a lot of his treatments. Uh, because we, we, we told him this, the stories as though he was, he was working through superhero stuff because he loves superheroes. And when he was getting a methotrexate, and you know, the, it was so green, we called it a green juice for Hawk. You know, we just had to make him participate in his care as much as we could. Rather than letting him feel like, my parents are letting him do this to me because I was traumatizing, we're like, let, let us relate some of those things to him so that he can connect to them in his own way. He liked Spider-Man. He liked all the Spider-Man movies. So anytime he went into a CT scan or an MRI, I told him that it's one of those machines that makes Spider-Man strong and makes him, you know, fight his foes. And he's like, okay, if that's what it is, I'm gonna do this MRI. I'm gonna do this CAT scan. And, I, and we had to find ways of just connecting with him. I mean, when he even got his port, you know, we called it the Iron Man thing. You know, so so uh, so you know, Iron Man has the has the whole thing on his chest. We told him that was what it was, and that's how he made, he made him stronger. You know, and. And those were the things that we could get him through and he loved those those stories he, he could he could identify all his medicines with something that was supposed to really make him stronger as much as you know he really had a hard time going through some of the you know chemotherapy schedules and the nausea and the vomiting and the tough times I think we were able to allow him to really participate in his care as much as possible because he was barely three years old and how, how much does he know about he does not he wasn't going to he was apart from immunizations he wasn't sick you know so the hospital is a foreign place to him. Uh, it's, it's supposed to be my workplace, but that's not his. That's not where he lives, right? And I think the hardest thing for me was when he really wanted to leave the hospital, and we said, "You just can't leave. You are even surprised. You just can't leave." He said, so, "I want to go to the playground." Fast forwarding a little bit, he went through his treatment, and he basically had his three-month scan. Um, actually, he had a six-six-week scan that was um, clean, so we we believe that. Everything was fine. He got through his his uh, cycles of chemo. I think we had another four Four months. of his initial cycles that seemed great, and so he was supposed to have focal radiation and then be done, and then he go, goes on maintenance. And so he finishes the focal radiation, and, I, and I'm 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 telling I'm 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 looking at a scan that was done six weeks prior, which had no disease. His cerebrospinal fluid had no atypical cells. Everything was good. Six weeks later, we get a follow-up scan, and
1: he has leptomeningeal disease. Leptomeningeal disease is when cancer spreads to the thin layer of tissues that cover the brain and spinal cord. These tissue are interconnected and serve to protect these vital organs. So when we see cancer in them, the prognosis is very poor.
3: All all over, like all over. And I I mean, when, when they came, they actually aborted the um,
1: lumbar puncture. A lumbar puncture is a procedure whereby some fluid from the spinal cord is collected and tested. In this case, it is to check for the presence of cancer cells, but it can also be used to test for infections.
3: Because once the MRI report came, they said, there's no point. There's no point doing LB. Um So they came to tell us the news, and that was the second worst day of our lives, and it still is. To hear him have this devastating news of ATRT, to have a glimmer of hope that maybe, just maybe, he's going to be okay. After all he's been through, the chemotherapy, and you know all that, surgery, and then radiation, and then everything, pretty much, and have to look at his scans. I remember looking at it with a radiation oncologist at that point, and I stopped counting. It was just, I'm like, it's just like cotton wool, and just all over. And yet I'll look at him and he's running around. And so I'm looking at the MRI, I'm looking at him and I'm like, this, this doesn't even make sense. How can such a boy who's playing with every toy and is just running around have such a terrible scan? Like, is this real? I'm praying, I'm hoping that maybe they picked the wrong scan. Maybe it's a switch, maybe, maybe something. Just give me some glimmer of hope that this is not our son. Like, this is not a scan. Um, So at that point, we knew that, you know, our our options were limited and we came back to Tampa to just, you know, see what else was available. We had, we're looking around for all kinds of studies. And I have to say only, I mean, being a physician myself, some of the things that really bothered me was how difficult it was to navigate the treatment options and the available options for this specific disease. I mean, we had other things like leukemia and, you know, other conditions have so much to offer. And I'm looking at ATRT, and it's just so hard. And I'm like, well, "What? should parents do? What should lay lay persons do?" I mean, I, I'm an oncologist. I mean, for that matter, and I'm struggling. Like that's not right. I mean, the resources are scattered. The information is not exactly coherent, and it's just difficult to know where to go, wh- what to do. And and so, right in that moment, we we still knew that something needed to change, even when we were in that in the battle. But one thing that was actually more pressing, more immediate, was the fact that even though Zion wasn't, he had a medical need, um, but there were very few places he could actually go to feel like a child again. Um, most of those places had to be a special needs environment, including even at a church we would find to just go and you know have a time of worship. It was hard because there were no there was no child, there was no ch- childcare care that could sustain what the needs he had. And there were we found one you know about in Memphis that was a godsend that we were actually able to send him there because his 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 nurse actually was there and was part of that special needs um, environment. So we felt confident. But right then there we recognized yet another need in the special needs in the medical needs, particularly in the medical needs community that is lacking that. There is nothing that can. Or very few, let me put that way, very few places or activities that they could do that it would feel like a normal child again. On July 7th, um, um, uh, 2016, he eventually passed. And um, yeah, that was where we, we had to say a very hard goodbye to to him um, after an 18-month battle with with ATRT. And before that, I think you know, there, there was a there was a specific moment that I like Jimmy to talk about that defines our need to start something in his memory because of the time where he found himself on stage, just like Mm -hmm. singing and dancing. And that was the, that was almost like the the climax of his, of the joy we found in him just doing what he loved to do. And after that, everything went downhill pretty much. So Mm -hmm. that marked a very special day for us. The
2: memory that he's talking about is um, a time in April. So just a few months, before he passed in July. So April, he was um, he was having difficulty. Um, he was not able to walk with his full strength. He was using a walker on occasion. Um, but we were connected to a church and here in Florida and the church was very invested in his story, in his journey, and they knew how much he loved superheroes. So they were planning to have a special event um, called Superhero Day, and they wanted to time it just right with what Zion was going through. So they, they moved it up in the calendar and um, decided to have Superhero Day where all the children at church could come in costume, wear their favorite superhero, and they were going to dance on stage to an amazing song that said, nothing is impossible and they made flyers and you could invite your friends and your community to come to Superhero Day and Zion held on to that postcard for the whole time that the event was being promoted whether it was two weeks or a month I don't know at this point but he was looking forward to Superhero Day it was like his ticket he did not let go of that postcard and he had to decide what Spider-Man costume to wear because of course he had at least three of them and um, he was so excited, he was so pumped for this day. And the day came and he wore his costume and we wore our capes and we invited our friends. Mm-hmm. And Zion got on stage and he sang and he danced. Nothing is impossible. Nothing is impossible. And as a mama, anytime you see your child on stage, I mean, your heart just bursts and soars and it's incredible. Um, but for this mama, who was looking at her boy, who was going through such a hard time and was so feeble. I mean, one, I was terrified he might fall off the stage, (laughs) but I was so just overjoyed that he was having that moment to shine and that we got to see it and we got to capture it and there were photographers and, you know, it was a moment in time that everything stood still and it was just, it was Zion's moment. He got to sing it out and sing it proud. Nothing is impossible and he brought our faith from here to here, he brought it up. He brought it up through the roof with his songs. And I never imagined that I would be speaking at my son's memorial service. But when that time came, there was no other thing that I would do than to talk and to share my son through my eyes and and Kasche did as well and he sang. Um, But I had to say, my son fulfilled his destiny as a worship leader. Our son led people to worship. He led us to worship. His journey brought us closer to God through music because he loved music. And the songs that he sang, I mean, they were so timely. And even if they were songs from Daniel Tiger, from the cartoons, it was so spot on in such a way that um, it just—it was—it was as if God was speaking through him to us that everything's gonna be okay. Even in death, everything is okay. Everything is gonna be okay because God is with us, and God is with Zion, and Zion is with God.
0: On part two of our episode with the Yamoas, we'll talk about life after Zion's death and the organizations that were inspired from the loss of their child. It's a story of taking life's tragedies and turning them into triumphs.
1: This podcast was produced by Steve A. Williams. I am Dr.
0: And I am Dr. Onine Balogun. And, and we are, are the Onk Docs.